He was the first kid I had to fail, I told Carly as we carried the canoe down the Peshtigo River shoreline. She was convinced that this weekend was going to help me put it all behind me. She did remind me, however, that he did have a pretty rough upbringing. But I told her that she didn't understand. I told him that I loved him and that all the other boys took to my leadership and they listened to what I had to say. So why didn't Dejarius? I felt so bad writing on his court report, Dejarius Robinson. Fail. You see, Dejarius grew up in the inner cities of Milwaukee, and his mom was more interested in her drug habits and didn't have the time or capacity to love on her little boy. When Dejarius was in the hospital to have a tumor removed from his right ear, his mom wasn't even there. She showed up two days later to only to take him back to his apartment. Dejarius was street smart. He did his own thing, made his own way, and raised himself. And when he got in trouble with the law, the judge sentenced him to Crosswind's adventure camp. That's where I met him. We had finally reached the Peshtigo River shoreline, and Josh and Sam met us down there as well. And so we finally started our two-day trek down the Peshtigo. As we, started, as we started out, I could feel all the worries and stress of being a camp counselor just kind of disappear. As we started out, I took a deep breath, a deep cleansing breath of fresh air, and I took in all the beauty that was around me. The trees were a gorgeous green in the water. The water was a bit high, but it was absolutely peaceful. The water looked as smooth as glass, and at times the sun danced on top of the water, and the wind would blow across the water, erasing the sunshine, only to allow it to flow back over and mix in with the water again. Shirts and cotton tees were all you needed for this warm, warm morning. We went through a few small rapids, but we handled them with ease. Yet, if one of the locals were with us, maybe we would have gotten the warning that morning. But for now, the four of us were clueless to what lied ahead. As we, were, as we continued down the shore, the Peshtigo River, me and Carly continued in our conversation about Crosswind's adventure camp. We had always been a couple that loved to try new and exciting things, and the camp was no different. I could tell in a very short time that I had a knack for helping these kids out. But with the thought of camp circling through my mind, I moved the conversation back to Jajarius. I still couldn't understand how a mother, a mother couldn't even love on her own little boy. I, I stuck my hand into the cool, gentle water. I could feel the current, but I was unaware that it was slowly picking up speed. As I reached down to splash water upon my face, Carly added her wisdom once more. She simply said that it's okay. He's going to be okay. And that even though you didn't know it, you did make an impact on him. I knew that she was right. Off in the distance, I could see Sam and Josh. It looked as if they were 
almost getting ready for something. I really didn't know, I didn't really think of it again because they looked to be smiling and having a fun time. And then I blinked and they were gone. It was as if they had just slid off of the face of the earth. Carly must have saw it too because her whole demeanor changed. Her voice became shaky and she started telling me about how fast they went down the river, how fast they went down the rapids. I took a deep breath, trying to take control of the situation and trying to stay as calm as possible. I remember telling her that we were gonna aim for where the water forms the V and that everything was gonna be okay. We just have to stay calm. Next thing I remember is trying and making sure that the canoe and everything was strapped down and everything was when I noticed I didn't have my life jacket on. I, I must have forgotten to put it on that morning and now it was just too late and, and I just didn't have the time to because the next thing I did was shout commands like, pull hard, pat on your left, watch out, boulder, boulder on your right. As we were pushed forward and we were spun around, my grip and my muscles began to tighten. We were... We, our two, canoe was tipped sideways and we were hung up on a rock. We were jutting out of the water and we started and we started to tip only, and then I started to hear Carly scream right before the water crested over the gun wall. We both went under. Our gear and everything was scattered out of the way. I tried in an attempt to reach for my life jacket, but as I did, I was swept under. When I came to the surface, Carly was screaming, Ethan, Ethan, where are you? Over and over again. I tried, I tried getting to her, but she kept getting drugged further and further away from me. And she was getting slammed from boulder to boulder. And her life jacket that she had on truly saved her life that day. You see, every time that she got hit from boulder to boulder, she kept saying my name over and over again until she was silenced by the roaring monster that kept dragging her further and further away. I tried reaching for anything to grab onto to stay afloat, but when I was smashed against boulder, another boulder, I was spun around when I realized I was facing backwards. And for an instant, just for an instant, I could feel something, something, through, my ro- something through my sandals. So I pushed off and I got to the surface. I took a quick breath and realized that I was facing backwards when the water was so deep and so fast that I couldn't do anything except keep being swept under and rolled around like an old rag doll. My body kept getting smashed from boulder to boulder and one boulder brutally scraped the right side of me. I was pulling and pulling. Once again, I felt like pulling and pulling to the surface. I was kicking and kicking my feet, and, but they were no use. My feet were just too weak. Then I was dropped into this whole kind of a thing, and anything that, that, caught, that got caught in it would roll like clothes in a dryer over and over and over again. When I got dropped in this hole, my foot got trapped in between two rocks just below my calf muscle, which forced my leg to stay bent and my foot slightly twisted. I tried doing anything I could. I pulled and I pushed, but I couldn't move. But yet the current was pulling me in every which way my body would not allow me to go. Meanwhile, Josh and Sam saw Carly coming down the rapids. They were spitting her out like it wanted nothing more to do with her. Her life jacket was torn and her arms and her legs and her head were scraped. There was blood dripping down the right side of her forehead. 
But as she got closer to them, no bones were broken. But you could tell by the look on her face that she clearly was broken. As they got her out of the water, they wrapped a towel around her in an attempt to comfort her and to keep her safe. But she was so disoriented and so confused that she kept repeating, like, Ethan, Ethan, where's Ethan? You have to understand him. We have to get Ethan. And it, was, and it was dark and it was scary and I couldn't get him. I couldn't get him. Where's Ethan? We have to find Ethan. Don't you understand? We have to find Ethan. They put her in the canoe between Josh and Sam and they started to canoe over to where the wreckage was. Everything was still attached except one thing. I remember hearing Ethan echoing through the canyon and through the muffled turmoil. I was trying to get free, jerking my body in any way I could. I kept pulling and pulling and pulling on my leg, but nothing would move. My nose began to fill with water when I half coughed. My throat began to tighten, and I remember this feeling of panic that overtook me. So I pulled harder and harder and harder and harder, but it wouldn't budge. I was so disoriented and confused because all I would have had to do was push down on the rock and I would have been okay. But then my throat slowly began to squeeze shut. I tried holding my breath the best I could, but there was only one thing on my mind. What if I can't get free? What about Carly? I'm too young to die. After two minutes of struggling, maybe a bit more, I really don't know. But as more of my oxygen depleted, I felt the strange calmness just pour over me. I no longer was pulling and pulling on my leg. I just kinda let go. The silence then flowed in the cool water, in the brownish yellow beneath the river's surface, captured my eyes. It was absolutely beautiful. The sun danced on the rock that held me and would not let me go. I never thought about how beautiful it was beneath the surface. Then everything started to fade. Then it went blank, like when you go to sleep. I'm not really sure what overtook me. But one of the last things I remember is the mute of sound of water that only lasted a split second. Because the next thing that happened, it felt like I was being yanked from the water by what felt like massive hands just grasping my arms to my body. I was being pulled away from the earth. And at that point, I knew that something old had gone and something very new had come. As I was being pulled away, I looked down into the water and I saw my body. I saw my lifeless body just sway in the current.
then what? What happens next? There's one thing we can all bet on. We are all going to die. I know this by observation, but even more so, I know it by what the Bible declares. It says, it is appointed unto us to die. Yet, I'm not sure how many people know what happens after death. Like, it's inevitable, but do we ever kind of wrap our minds around, well, okay, if it's true, then what? I mean, outside of the times when, you know, our loved ones are very sick or we're at a funeral or something, we really don't talk about death very much. We don't talk about what happens after we die. And there's a lot of opinions out there, a lot of different opinions. Matter of fact, after the first hour, I had a number of people come up and tell me their opinion as to what exactly happens after we die. And yet, I wonder what the Bible has to say about it. We are going to spend seven weeks talking about heaven, where Christians go when they die, what we can expect. And this series is going to be a little bit different than past series uh, in two ways. One way is uh, what you had the joy of witnessing just now. Uh, Grace Rissy, who's a junior in high school, uh, a great speaker, uh, I asked her if she would be willing to help us get to know this guy, this fictitious guy named Ethan James Goodwin. And uh, we were just introduced to him this morning by Grace, and we will track with Ethan uh, his experiences in heaven and what he goes through. And the reason for doing this is to just stir our creative imagination around what exactly happens when we're in heaven. And then uh, she will share with us the story of Ethan, and then I'll follow it up with, well, let's go to the scriptures and see what the Bible has to say about some of the stuff that our friend Ethan Goodwin has gone through. The, the second interesting twist to this series is that uh, there'll be a phone number up on the screen. There's the number right there. Real easy to remember, 923-20-121. 923-20-121, you'll remember it. And uh, so what I want you to do is get out your smartphones. Normally we say, you know, silence them, put them away. You can still silence them, but uh, I want you to feel free to text me questions as I'm preaching. You see, what happened was when the creative team was talking about this series and how, it might, uh, how we might add some creative elements, we did as much talking about creative elements as we did about, well, what about this? And what about that? And as we talked about the different messages I would give, you know, well, is this true or is that true? And it just caused us to say, well, why don't we just open it up? Why don't we just allow people to ask questions while I'm preaching? And so at the end of the service today, uh, I'm going to actually answer as many questions as I can. And then whatever questions I don't get to today, I actually, my plan is on Tuesday, I will videotape myself with my little phone and we'll post it on Facebook, on our Facebook page, Faith, Faith Church's Faith, Facebook page. And so whatever questions I don't get to this morning, I will answer via video and we'll put that on our Facebook and then you can go there and, uh, and we'll just have this nice dialogue going on, I hope. Uh, so uh, feel free to, as I'm talking this morning, to be thinking, well, 
uh, I wonder about this or I wonder about that and just shoot those questions out and we'll try to answer them at the end of the service this morning, as many as we can. All right, so let's start with, the, with why we're talking about this. Uh, the question that I have is where should our thoughts be? And our thoughts ought to be on heavenly things. As Christians, our thoughts ought to be on eternity. We should always be thinking in terms of eternity. If you have a Bible handy, you can follow along with me. Otherwise, I'll have the scripture up here on the screen. But I want to take us, first of all, to Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. It says this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, if you are a Christian, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. So he gives two commands here. One is in verse 1, keep seeking the things above. And then he kind of restates it this way in verse 2, set your mind on things above. These are a command. They're saying this is what we must do. We must have our minds set on heavenly things. I think in our lives we can get so caught up in the here and now. Get so caught up in, oh, it's so stressful, you know, at work, or, or uh, boy, I just don't like the way this country is being run, or, uh, you know, our financial situation is really tough. It seems like at the end of the month, we have more month than there is money, you know. There, there's just all these things about life that seem to just cause us to focus on the here and now. We can get so wrapped up in this life right now. But let, me, let me share with you the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 6. In Matthew chapter 6, in verse 9, Jesus says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where should our heart be? Our hearts should be thinking on heavenly things, on eternal things. And Jesus even goes on and he's talking about how we can worry about, you know, uh, life and about the things of this world. And uh, he goes on and kind of expresses how God really, really cares for us. We don't have to worry about those things. And at the end of his argument here, he says in verse 33 of Matthew 6, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Seek first the Lord's kingdom. Seek first the Lord's eternity to have our minds set on that. Not only should our minds be set on eternity, but our minds should be set on our true citizenship. Our citizenship, our true citizenship is not of this world. As a matter of fact, if you go to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory. Actually, he's going to give us a heavenly body, uh, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. But here's how he gives us his heavenly body at the end of verse 21, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. In other words, Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. He is God, and by his power, he's actually going to give us a heavenly body when we get there. 
Yeah. If you live in the United States, more than likely you're a citizen of the United States. If you live here in Wisconsin, we are citizens of this great state. And yet, our citizenship is actually not of this world. Our true citizenship is in heaven. And therefore, when we evaluate what we think about, when we evaluate what we're doing, when we make decisions in life, when, when, we, when, when we think about what we're all about, our filter that we must put everything through is how does this impact my true citizenship? How does this make a difference for eternity? How does this contribute to the things which are eternal? And everything that we go through in life, in this life, we should ask ourselves the question, Lord, how are you preparing me for eternity? No matter what loss we experience, no matter what challenge we face, no matter what transition we go through, no event goes unnoticed by the Lord. No hardship uh, is for naught. God is preparing us for eternity. This life does matter for that life to come. And therefore, we must live this life in light of the life to come, to keep our thoughts on eternal things, to keep our eyes on our true citizenship, to keep our eyes on heaven. So let's get back to the opening question. Then what? What happens the moment we die? Let me first talk about us as Christians. If you are a Christian, if you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, let me first talk about what the Apostle Paul writes about what happens to Christians when they die. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we see these words, very important words by the Apostle Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So let me just stop. When he's talking about this earthly tent, he's talking about our physical bodies right now. He, he contrasts our physical bodies right now as a tent and our heavenly bodies as a house. They're very different in, in their structure and in their strength. Verse 2, for indeed in this house we groan. By the way, that's true. In this physical body of ours right now, the older I get, the, real, the more I realize, yeah, I kind of groan in this thing. It doesn't always function the way I want it to function. And if you're my age or older, you'll probably nod your head and say, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Anyway, let's go on. Uh, <clears throat> longing, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Verse 3, inasmuch as we, having put it on, will not be found naked. What that means is when we die, we're, we don't just become disembodied spirits. You know, we don't just become ghosts that have no material structure to us. Actually, we are given a heavenly body. Verse 4, for indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. Now he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Notice Spirit there is capital S. He gives us the Holy Spirit as a pledge, that when we trust Jesus as our Savior, we are what the Bible calls, what Jesus said, are born again. We are born of the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit is our guarantee that we're going to spend forever with the Lord. The Spirit is our seal, or as he says here, our pledge, verse 6. Therefore, 
being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be home with the Lord. While we are in this physical body of ours, while we're in this tent that the Bible calls us, this physical body of ours, we are actually not seeing the Lord face to face. We are not where he is. We are not in heaven. But when we die, then we will go to be with him. We'll go to our true home. We'll go experience our true citizenship. Remember when Jesus was on the cross and there was a thief next to him who put his faith in Jesus at that moment? Do you remember what Jesus said to him on the cross? He said these words. He said, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Heaven is paradise. You ever been at a funeral, a visitation, uh, you know, where the casket is there and uh, the body of a loved one is inside the casket and um, people come and they pay respects. And when I talk to people at funerals or at visitations and they see that body in the casket, I think almost without exception, I hear people say, well, yeah, you know, that's, that's my loved one, but he's not there or, or she's not there. I mean, the body's there, sure, but it's like a shell, like they're not there anymore. And that's true, because they're not. When our bodies die, our souls, that immaterial part of us, is given a heavenly body. A house made for us for when we're in heaven. Just like a house is so much more than a tent, like I said, this heavenly body is going to be so much more than this earthly body of ours. So that's what happens with Christians. What about non-Christians? What happens with non-Christians, those who haven't placed their faith in Jesus? They haven't trusted in him for eternal life. Well, they are given over to their desired end. Their desired end was to be away from the Lord and his goodness and his grace. They wanted nothing to do with him in this life and therefore they'll have nothing to do with him in eternity. When an unbeliever dies, the Bible says that they go to the grave. And there's an Old Testament word for that and there's a New Testament word. The Old Testament word in the Hebrew is Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. It literally means the grave. And if you track the word Sheol through the Old Testament, you'll see that it's connected to silence. No activity. No knowledge. It's connected to sorrow and weeping. It's connected to fright and terror and punishment. In the New Testament, the Greek word is Hades, H-A-D-E-S. And it literally means the place of the dead. Hades comes on the heels of death in Revelation chapter 6. And those who go to Hades experience torment. So Sheol, or Hades, is the holding place for those who die not trusting in Christ, who aren't in Jesus, who haven't placed their faith in Jesus, trusting that he died 
to pay the penalty for their sins and rose from the grave to give them the gift of eternal life. Those in Sheol or Hades are held there until they face the judgment of God, according to Revelation 20 and verse 13. But for those who are in Christ, those who are Christians, one more question I want to ask, how do we get to heaven? You know, like, we die, but then how do we end up going to heaven? I've read a number of books about people who have experienced near-death near death experiences. Maybe some of you have read similar books. And I can tell you one common theme through all the people who, who uh, talk about near-death experiences. Uh, one common theme is there's no common theme. <laughs> like, you know, uh, one book I read, the guy dies and he said he was like going through this really bright white tunnel and just like moving super fast as he went toward heaven. Another person said that when they died, it was like they just started rising up from their body and they could see the people working on their body below them and they were just sort of drifting up to heaven, sort of all sort of peaceful-like uh, as they were moving away from their body. Another book I read, a woman died and she actually, um, when she like came to, there was a bunch of people around her, like, like people who had already gone to heaven and they were like coming to get her to bring her to heaven. It seems like in all of the cases that I read, and maybe some that you've read too, they always talk about this incredible uh, feeling of, of joy that, that you can't even really express. Like it's just this emotion that is so good they can't even express it. Now, I, I'm not going to discount any of those experiences, and yet I want to just go to the Bible. So what does the Bible have to say about how we end up going to heaven? I want to take us, first of all, to a story that Jesus told about this rich man and this guy named Lazarus. And it is a story, but I think there might be insights into what Jesus was teaching us as to how we are brought to heaven. Notice in Luke chapter 16, Luke chapter 16, beginning at verse 19, it says, Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died, and get this, and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. By this account, we can see that the Bible indicates that angels seem to bring us to heaven. Angels seem to bring us to heaven. By the way, this rich man, when he died and was buried, the very next verse says that he was in Hades. So, it seems as if uh, angels are involved. Angels carried him away into the arms of Abraham. That would be the patriarch of the Old Testament. What's interesting is it seems as if he knew Abraham in that moment. It, it's like he didn't have to be explained who this guy was. And then there's a very interesting uh, passage in the Psalms. Psalms talk here and there about angels. And one of uh, these passages in Psalm 93 tells us how God gives charge over us from his angels. Interesting, Psalm 91 and verse 11. It says, for he will give his angels charge concerning you 
to guard you in all your ways. And then get this in verse 12. They will bear you up in their hands, but you do not strike your foot against a stone. When Ethan was being lifted up out of the water, there were these big hands that grabbed him and lifted him up. I picture that these angels that brought Lazarus to heaven and and then this angel here that lifts this guy up uh, seems to indicate that angels are involved in our transportation to heaven. Even in 2 Kings chapter 2, you might recall that Elijah, the prophet, was talking to Elisha, his protege, and, uh, and he was leading him, and he was then caught up in a whirlwind and brought to heaven. But do you remember what happened before the whirlwind was seen in, in 2 Kings 2? It says that a chariot came down and got him, and then he was brought up in a whirlwind. Now, it doesn't tell us who was driving the chariot, but it's not a stretch of our intellectual imagination to think, you know what, I, I, it's not a stretch to think an angel could have very well have been driving that chariot, a messenger from the Lord. Well, honestly, there's not a lot in the Bible as to how we are transported to heaven. But what evidence we do have indicates that angels are definitely involved. So how do we get to angel, or how do we get to heaven? Well, angels are involved, but finally, the only way that we get to heaven is only through Jesus. The only way we can go to heaven is through Jesus. Jesus said these words in John chapter uh, 14. These are words that some of you might recall. John chapter 14, verse 6, he's answering Thomas, one of his disciples, who was asking questions about going to heaven. And Jesus said to him, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No one can go to heaven and be with our Heavenly Father but through the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Peter, when he was talking about Jesus, put it this way in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. He said, And there, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. He's speaking specifically of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven other than the name of Jesus, by which we must be saved. There aren't many paths that lead to heaven. There aren't many paths that lead to eternity with with the Lord. There's only one path, and that path is through Jesus. Jesus made this perfectly clear when he was in the upper room with his disciples before uh, he was to be betrayed by Judas, and then um, when he was taking communion with them. He actually was celebrating the Passover meal. And as he was celebrating the Passover meal, he highlighted to them how he is the only way that we can be rescued from our sin and to be spend eternity with the Lord. Uh, you may remember that the Passover meal is a meal where, um, where they celebrate that in the Old Testament, when they were slaves in Egypt, they actually uh, took the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorposts of their houses, the Israelites, and as they put their blood on the doorpost, the angel of death would come and they would, he would pass over the house because he saw the blood. The death would pass over the family because of the blood. And Jesus said, listen, God will pass over his judgment on you because of my blood. And so when you take this meal, don't do it in remembrance of the Passover of the Old Testament. Now do it in remembrance of me. And so 
We take communion on a regular basis, and we do this in remembrance of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, that he is the only reason why we can be sure we'll spend have, uh, eternity with the Lord, starting with going to heaven. Well, let's pray together. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for dying for us. Lord, thank you for giving us the gift of eternal life, a relationship which starts today and then lasts forever. And a part of that eternity will be spent with you in heaven. For those of us who have placed our faith in you, Lord, we want to say thank you. Thank you that you died for our sins and rose from the grave. And you are in paradise right now. And you can't wait to see us in paradise with you. Thank you for the promises that your word lays out for this. And Lord, as we come to communion this morning, I pray that you'll prepare our hearts to take it, that we'll have a thankful heart, that we'll thank you for your goodness in our life. You'll th we'll thank you for how you have uh, made the way for us through your death on our behalf. Lord Jesus, we just commit our hearts over to you now, and we pray this in your precious name. Um, I promised that I would answer questions. I don't know how many of you got on your phones and texted questions, but uh, I have Pastor Pat here who has been gathering them, which, by the way, for future reference, it's all anonymous. I don't know who's asking these questions um, unless you give me your name, but um, we'll answer one or two. We're kind of running out of time. A lot of elements in today's service, but uh, how'd they come in? They came in loud and clear. Uh, you may not know, but I know who sent them. No. <laughs> Just kidding, just kidding. All right, first one. This is a heavy hitter right off the top. Will we have free will in heaven? And if so, will we be able to sin? There will be no sin. Uh, we will have, angels have free will. And uh, they, there was a time when angels fell from the glory of heaven. Uh, with Satan being the chief angel among them. But since then, it doesn't seem like angels fell. There was sort of a moment in history, and the glorified angels in heaven have a free will, and yet they, uh, they follow the will of God uh, completely. He sends them where he sends them, gives them charge over them like we talked, and uh, we will have glorified bodies, and there won't even be, in our free will, there won't even be an urge to not follow the Lord. So uh, it's an experience that uh, there, there will not, we will not, we will have free will. But in, in that free will, uh, it seems as if we will not sin. We just won't do it. Okay. Just keep in mind I'm the messenger here. Uh, will our treasures in heaven basically mean that there are better neighborhoods and better jobs in heaven than others? The Bible is clear that your faithfulness on this side of heaven has an effect on your experience in heaven and throughout. There are rewards that we will be given for our faithfulness. There are rewards that will be given for how we go through our different experiences. As an example, um, there are some people in this life that suffer more than others. I am one of those, as I pastor people, am always reminded that I just don't suffer as much with a lot of things in life that people do. And yet, there is the crown of life for those 
who experience trials, who go through those trials, and they, and they, they, they just walk with the Lord through them. There is this special gift called the crown of life for those who experience trials. So uh, it's an indication uh, when, it, when you talk about neighborhoods, um, in the story of Ethan that we'll hear, I, uh, we've creatively, I've creatively thought through, well, what's heaven going to be like, you know, as far as neighborhoods are concerned and stuff. So we might get a little, little sanctified creativity, shall we say, in that. But, um, but there does seem to be, uh, not everyone will be a pillar in the temple of God, as Revelation uh, talks about, uh, just those who are overcomers. So uh, we'll get into that as we continue in this series, this idea of standing before the judgment seat of Christ and being, the big word would be recompensed for our uh, lives here, uh, uh, rewarded for our lives here. But we'll all be living in a gated community, is that right? (laughs) (laughs) You won't need a gate. (laughs) There won't be any sin. Okay. Let's, uh, you know what, Pat, we could keep going. You got one more, one more quick one. Okay. Uh, will we be able to see things that are going on in, on earth when we're in heaven? We'll be able to see things on earth when we're in heaven. Uh, actually, this is what I'm going to talk about next Sunday. Next Sunday is going to be on, uh, so we're in heaven and people are on earth. Like, do we know our loved ones on earth? Do they have a sense that we're, you know, where we're at? How does that all work? What does the Bible have to say about uh, seeing what's happening on, on earth? Do we even care what's happening on earth when we're in heaven? All those kinds of things are what I'm going to try to dive into uh, next Sunday. So stay tuned. I'll, I'll save my answer for next Sunday, okay?